Good morning. My name is Kelly Finlayson. Today's reading is from Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth, chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Listen for the word of God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So here we are back in 1 Corinthians, as Ingrid noted, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church he'd helped found in the city of Corinth. And you'll remember from last week that some members of Paul's community were denying the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And Paul responded, piling up evidence upon evidence, culminating with his own encounter with the risen Christ. And this week, we are still on the resurrection train, as you've heard. This week, though, Paul's reacting to a denial of something that's different, but related. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, he says, if Christ has been raised, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? The resurrection of the dead that Paul is talking about is often termed as the general resurrection. The general resurrection. That at the end of time, at the culmination of all of history, all human beings will be raised from the dead, some to eternal life. Who is raised eternally and who isn't is a question that's debated throughout history with a variety of answers. I tend to lean very heavily in the direction of the more numerous end of things. Regardless here, though, it's a shorthand for the future resurrection and subsequent life eternal. And that's what's being questioned or denied by the Corinthians. Now, of course, we need to remember that this language isn't literalistic, like a video recording sent back uh, from the future via divine DeLorean, here's what I've got, uh, Doc, <laughs> Doc, I got this from the future. But it's stretching the human imagination and words to try to describe this mysterious truth. It doesn't mean that it's any less true, but what we're getting at is a mystery, ultimately. 
What is clear about this language, though, is that God is faithful even into death and beyond. And we're not quite sure how they're denying it, but they're more or less saying that the resurrection is limited to this life. It's all about this life, all about being reborn as a person, all about being a changed person here and now. And a future resurrection is optional at best for this group in the Corinthian church. Now, clearly, as you may be able to tell from our reading, that this denial of the general resurrection clearly drives Paul nuts, you could say. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul says, it means that Christ hasn't been raised. If God can't raise people from the dead in the future, Paul says, then God couldn't raise Jesus from the dead in the past. You kind of can't have one without the other, Paul says. It's a bit of a package deal. They're together. God can can do both, or God can't do either of them. Furthermore, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, Paul says, then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for only this life we have hoped in, in Christ, then we deserve nothing but other people's pity. So first, two things are happening here. First, Paul argues that if there's no future resurrection, then the members of the community who have died are lost forever. Dead is dead is dead. No future because that's all she wrote. That's pretty much it. And second, Paul's making a very this-worldly point as well when he says this life, that all we can hope for is this life, he's not talking about the beauty of sunflowers and children playing in the woods. Those are good things. What he's talking about is the world as it is. The world as it is. A world full of such suffering and pain. The world that is fallen. As much progress as there has been for humanity, every time we find a solution, we're gifted with a new problem. And so if all we can hope for is a slightly better version of the world as it is for a few moments, then what's the point of any kind of faith altogether? Any difference we might make is like a castle made of sand, and all castles made of sand, if you know that Jimi Hendrix song, slip into the sea eventually might matter for a bit, but in the end, in the end, it all turns to dust. Not only that, but the question becomes apparent too. What about the people who have died? Not only people, not only died, but what about the people who've never had a chance to truly live in this life? Children who have died too soon, or people who've had to live their lives, whole lives, under terrible oppression without a break. I mean, maybe it might help us to not make the same mistakes in the future that we made in the past, but what if we don't? What if we just keep making the same mistakes over and over again? And what kind of hope is this for the child hidden in the crowd who watched their parents hoarded into the train headed to Auschwitz? What about the parents? What about the child? Where's the justice in the end? 
Paul says that if all we can hope for in this, if this is all we can hope for is this life, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. If this is all there is, life's here, then it's gone. The world's here, then it's gone. It's a journey with no destination. Without a future, Paul says, whatever this world may offer is severely limited, fleeting at best. It's without deeper meaning, fulfillment, or future. Might as well pour yourself that cocktail, put your feet up if you can, and just enjoy the ride. Now, of course, the implication here is that clearly there has to be another way. The little sentence at the end of our reading provides a clue. It's kind of like this, you know, you hear Paul saying, if this is not true, then this can't be true. And then at the end he says, just one single line in the affirmative. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died. First fruits. The first fruits are the very beginning of a season's harvest. Here Paul's saying that Christ's resurrection is just the beginning. It's the first fruits of a greater crop yield to come. It's the tip of the iceberg. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we've received a revelation, a call from the future. In him, we, see a get, we get a glimpse, a foretaste, a sneak preview, if you will, of the eternal destiny that belongs to all of us. In it, we see that thread running back through billions of years of history and running forward past the horizon of infinity. Christ, the first fruits of those who have died. And I've shared this quote before, but I'm going to quote it again because it's so good. It's been a while, but maybe if you heard it already and you're like, he's reusing material. Um, <laughs> in his book, Making Sense of Evolution, Darwin, God, and the Drama of Life, the Catholic theologian John Hott writes about the immense suffering, death, and loss that's taken place over the billions of years of history and the process of evolution. So many creatures, great and small, mass extinctions, countless instances of human suffering, war, and abuse. If this is all there is, Hot says flatly, if this is all there is, then history and human life, by extension, has no meaning. Our faith is in vain, as Paul says. But, Hot says, if there's some sort of a consummation, if there's some sort of an end point, if there's some sort of an eternal destiny, then nothing is in vain. Because nothing is ultimately lost. And here's the quote. The power of God, he writes, the power of God to redeem all all of life from death can be justified not by intellectual effort, but only by trust in the love and fidelity of God made manifest in Jesus Christ. 
If as Jesus promised, the hairs of our head are numbered, and if as the psalmist earlier proclaimed, all our tears flow into God's flask, then somehow every perishing life and every past event is preserved eternally in God. Though all of life comes to an end, Hot says, past, present, and future are all knit together by a love that can't be vanquished by anything, not even death. Meaning that life's not just a series of events, some joyful, some painful, a journey that turns to the dust with the death of the sun. But it's a journey that's heading somewhere, that this life and eternity are intertwined, forever fused into a single cohesive whole. Some of you will know Garrison Keillor. Who knows Garrison Keillor? Any hands up? Some, yes, some, literally some, a handful of people, some. Uh, Keillor became famous for his radio show, Prairie Home Companion. You may also know, this very small sum of you may also know, that a few years ago, Keillor had a major fall from grace that he never quite recovered from. And nonetheless, Keillor's kept up a regular blog. Even when his career imploded, he kept writing about his experiences. And after his fall from grace, Keillor found himself attending church with more regularity than he had in the past. And I've held on to one entry for quite a while that he wrote in response to an Easter Sunday service. And it was titled, What Happened in Church on Sunday, I Think. (laughs) What happened in church on Sunday, I think. Church was packed on Easter morning, he says. Brass players up in the choir loft, ladies with big hats, girls in spring dresses, And when the choir and clergy processed up the aisle, the woman singing the censer that was was, uh, full of... uh, What's the censer full of? Incense. Excellent. Censer full of incense. It looked like a drum major leading the team to victory, which is what Easter is about, the triumph over death. Resurrection is not something we Christians talk about in the same way we talk about our plans for summer vacation or retirement, but it is proclaimed on Easter and the hymns are quite confident with added brass. And the minister seemed to believe in, believe in it herself. And so an old writer like me sitting halfway back and surrounded by good singers has to think along those lines. It's right there in the Nicene Creed and in Luke's Gospel. The women come to the tomb and find the stone rolled away and the mysterious strangers say, Why seek ye the living? among the dead. And then on my way back from communion, the choir strung up a hymn, struck up a hymn. I am the bread of life, they sang. I am the bread of life with a rocking chorus, and I will raise them up, and I will raise them up, and I will raise them up on the last day. And as the congregation sang, a few people stood, and some of them, they even raised their hands in the air, a charismatic touch among Anglicans, Unusual. And then more people stood, and I stood, and I raised my right hand. I raised my right hand. 
I close my eyes and I imagine my long gone parents and brother. I imagine my grandson and my aunts and my uncles. And I imagine them rising from the dead and coming into radiant glory. And then I was weeping and my mouth got rubbery and I couldn't form the consonants. I stayed for the benedictions, slided out the side door onto Amsterdam Avenue and headed home. That's what I go to church for, Keeler says. To be surprised by faith and to fall apart. Without the resurrection, he says, Anglicans would just be a wonderful club of very nice people with excellent taste in music and literature. But when it hits you what you've actually subscribed to, it blows the top of your head off. When it hits you what you've actually subscribed to, it blows the top of your head right off. And really, what Keeler here is describing is the promise of the gospel. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have beheld the love at the heart of all things. A love that is so great, so powerful, so overwhelming, that death cannot and will not ever shake us or anything from its grasp. Children, uncles, grandchildren, spouses, brothers, sisters, or friends. Without it, as Keeler says, we have nothing but a wonderful club of very nice people with excellent taste in music and literature. With it, though, we have absolutely everything. It's not the easiest thing to believe it's this is true. It's not any easier for us than it was for the first disciples. But if you do believe in it, the beauty of it all is liable to blow the top of your head right off. It's liable to change everything for you here and now and forever. It won't immediately erase the ache of death and the suffering of this life, but it gives us hope. It gives us hope because it says that every single moment, every single action, every single relationship matters in the end because it's part of the greater story of God's grace. That all our hurt and our pain and every single life and every single loss will one day be healed and redeemed. Every tear wiped away, every trace of darkness in us burned off by the fire of God's mercy. If Christ is the, has been raised, he is the first fruits of those who have died. And that means us. So, brothers and sisters, siblings in Christ, if Christ hasn't been raised, like Paul says, we are still in our sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, then those who have died have perished 
forever. If Christ hasn't been raised, then this world as it is, is all we could ever hope for. And we might as well fill the sanctuary with some of those, you know, those giant kegs and start a brewery instead. It'd be a lot more lucrative. We'd probably find more volunteers. But if Christ has been raised, if Christ is the first fruit of resurrection of new creation, then this life in all of its brokenness and falling short, even the smallest act of love is worth it because it's a signpost on a journey fixed towards the most beautiful destination, the eternity of God's never-ending love. So hold fast to this good news, dear friends. Though a warning, it's liable to blow the top of your head right off and your life apart in a good way. Amen.